to Splatter Shatter, where October never dies. I am one of your hosts, Miss Malmoy. I'm the other bitch, Mr. Kruger. <laughs> and this is episode 84. Tonight, we are bringing you a, a folksy tale um, from faraway northern lands uh, for... Women's History Month, we are discussing uh, Ari Aster's 2019 2019, uh, summer spooky hit, Midsummer. Ooh. Ooh. Um, A smash hit. Yes. Yes. Very critically well-received, maligned at award shows, um, and by dude bros Mm. on the internet, I think. Um... But yeah, so we're going to dive into this, looking at it from a uh, feminist sort of perspective and look at it compared to sort of past films. I have a little hypotheses I want to share with you all tonight. And also, did you know that Ariana Grande is a huge fan of this film? Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's- She's like put it in like references to it in music videos and stuff and talked about it a lot and like talks about it a lot on Instagram. Um, I enjoy that fact. Yeah. I'm a huge Ariana Grande fan. (laughs) Yeah, she's, like, really into this movie. So that's fun. I like that. I feel like that makes sense, especially Mm. given not her newest album, but the album before, Thank You, Next. Yes, I will try and find. There's a specific music video I saw that makes a reference like explicitly makes reference to this. Like it's not like a, like they did it on purpose. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I bet it's a song from that album. Yeah, and uh, she also will has been known to be like watching Midsummer again on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that's hilarious. Yeah, thought I'd share um, that as part of the 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 feminism. The circle goes on and on. <laughs> so what what if? Ari Aster is actually Ariana. We've not Aster seen. Grande. We've we've not asked Grande. <laughs> we've not seen. Have we? Well, maybe we have seen them in the same place. I don't know. Maybe she went to the know. premiere. Um, yeah, a theory. Prove us a wrong. <laughs> <laughs> that Ariana Grande and Ari Aster are the same person. Are the same. You can't. Tell me I'm wrong. Like, have you ever seen Ari Aster sing? He could be really good at it. He could be really good at it. He could be over there belting out seven rings (laughs) as we speak. (laughs) He has been on a little bit of a a quiet streak since Midsummer, so it could be because he's he's promoting his new album. Because he was working on Positions, the latest (laughs) Arnagonde album. Exactly. So that's the the hot goss are breaking for you just, you know, at the top of at the top of this episode. I love it. We're, you know, we're everything here. <laughs> we're we're horror films, but we're also pop music. <laughs> you know what? That's fair. That's true. <laughs> that's that's true. That's my truth. I'm so tickled by that. Yeah. Yeah, so that's a fun fact. Um that is- but before we dive into to Midsummer, what have uh, you been up to in the past month of your life? 
Yeah. So I'm trying to remember like what I talked about when we did our bad hair episode. Um, I finished the exorcist television. Oh, that's series. Right. You were watching that. Yeah, definitely enjoyable. Um, I still give it a recommend. I like the first season a bit more than the second season, but both, both still pretty good. Um, What else have I been um, keeping up on with Servant? They do like oh yes, 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 yeah, um, creepy and crazy and um, full of phenomenal acting. Lauren Ambrose and Rupert Grant and just everybody in that cast is just killing it. Mm-hmm. And um. Movie-wise, I've been watching a ton of horror. Again, I've still been really, like, focused on horror television. I saw well, Lucky. You need something sustainable, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, I did see Lucky, though. Yeah. The new um, Shutter feature with Brea Grant that she wrote and starred in. She didn't direct. I can't remember off the top of my head who directed right now. And, you know, everyone, it's all, like, controversial, and the, the dude bros don't like it because it's about, like, it's just a, a giant metaphor for, like, being a woman in America in 2021. I love a good metaphor for being a woman. <laughs> yeah, and so it's, I mean, it's very heavy-handed. It's not the most subtle thing in the yeah. world. Um, but it's, it was pretty good. And what else? I don't know. It's been kind of a light. You were reading uh, The Only Good Indians, right? I'm reading The Only Good Indians. I'm almost done. I really like it when I'm reading it. Mm-hmm. But I find myself putting it down for long stretches of time. Mm-hmm. I can see kind that. Of forgetting about it when I'm not reading it. Mm-hmm. I don't know what that means about... If that's that might be more a comment on me as a reader and just where I am right mm-hmm. now, as opposed to the book itself. But what a book! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, what a what a book! I actually have his other his earlier one, Mongrels, that I'm going to read at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I've heard that's good too. Yeah. Um, what have you been reading, watching, listening to? Well, I finished, I finally finished The Dark Tower. Yay! Yes. And as uh, uh, Mr. Carter and what I... What is your verdict? What is my verdict? That's a, <laughs> that's a, a tall You, the order. jury, find The Dark Give Tower. Give us a one-sentence response. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I mean, I enjoyed it. I mean, there are definitely parts... I mean, as with any... Stephen King book that's more than 500 pages there are parts that drag there are parts where it's like if anyone else had written this an editor would have said no we don't need to spend 300 pages you know talking about what they ate for dinner yeah um and that sort of thing um but I enjoyed it and I, you know it's interesting because um I mean I won't spoil too much although the books have been out for like what almost 20 years now completed like the last one came out in 2004 i think yeah. um 
but I was surprised at how how bummed out I was when certain characters died. And, like, actually I was, like, doing that thing where I was like, you will not cry. You will physically hold it. Hold it in painfully. Um, so, yeah, no, I enjoyed it. It's definitely a lot to, to think about. And, I mean, at the beginning, in the editions I have, um, it lists, like, other works by Stephen King. And then it, like asterisks ones that reference anything that happens in the Dark Tower, so I think I might go through and take a look at some of those as well. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. I feel like the thing with the Dark Tower that I've seen a lot by people who are, like, mega fans is that its impact grows the more you go back to the story. Mm-hmm. And it's a really tall order to, like, reread the whole thing. Yeah, but like the consensus seems to be that like if you do that, um, which I, you know it makes sense, right? You're gonna find things, yeah, that you didn't catch the first time around, and it's gonna mean more to you. Yeah, I'd be interested to reread at least um, the first three, just because I or I even I guess the first four because I read all of those really quick back to back. And then I took a pause, as I know a lot of people tend to take pauses after Wizard and Glass. I did not take a pause for the reason that people normally do. I think I actually just run out of books. Yeah. Like, I had gotten them all from, like, like used bookstores, and then I got to the last one that I had in my possession, and then after that kind of fell off of reading them as quickly. And I took, like, a couple years between Wizard and Glass and Wolves of the Cala. Um, but, um... No, I could definitely see that, and I mean, like, it definitely, all their talk about, um, JFK, I was like, well, I guess I gotta read, uh, was it 11, 20, 2263? Yeah. And I was like, oh, okay, so I see. That's one of his best, I think. Yeah. It's just, like, I am not currently prepared to embark on another 900 plus page book, so I'm gonna yeah, give also. that maybe, maybe I'll make that a summer read. And try and do some things between now and then. But no, I really enjoyed them. And I mean, I really enjoyed it um, as a fantasy world, as a fantasy story. I knew Stephen King was going to be a character in the book. I didn't expect him to be so much of a character. Um, And I think Stephen King writing himself is probably the most... I don't even want to say it's self-indulgent because that's obvious. It's just like... that's okay (laughs) it's something that literally i i can say with 99 percent confidence no other author could ever do i know that's what's funny i was talking to my friend about these books because i was like the ending had kind of like it wasn't as like i don't want to say bad but it wasn't as um questionable as like the ending of the stand but um i was saying to my friend i was like oh yep we got to the end of the like four you know, 4,000 page series. And, you know, this is the ending. And she was like, the thing about Stephen King is he's probably one of the most creative people to like ever live, but for some reason needs someone to like elevate his ideas sometimes and like, can't fully flesh out like everything that's going on in his mind. Yeah. And I think, in regards to the Dark Tower, 
I think he was hyper aware of that. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why it ends the way that it does. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, no spoilers. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. The Dark Tower, I... I read those books, I think within like, within six months, I had read all seven. Like yeah, you went through them quick. Yeah, I went through them really quickly. Um, like three years ago, maybe? Because um, my, my plan was I wanted to read them all before the movie came out. And then I didn't end up seeing <laughs> the movie and haven't seen it to this day. But I still think about The Dark Tower like a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, random scenes or moments will just flash into my mind. The they amount of times in emails I've almost been like, say thank you. Yeah, say thank you. <laughs> say thank you big, big. Yeah, and I'm like, nope. Uh, yeah, and I think the characters are some of his best. Yeah. And maybe that's a little unfair because we spend so much time with them. Right. But... You know what's interesting is for the longest time, I kind of like have really... You know, and maybe this is why I was drawn to this character, but I felt like there was a lot of similarities between Eddie and um, Larry from The Stand. Mm. Larry, who is probably my favorite character from The Stand, a lot of people's favorite character from The Stand. And I feel like that's one of the reasons I was really drawn to, like, that Ten. character. Yeah. Because I find a lot of similarities between them. I could see that. That would be... That would be really interesting to do a character study between the two of them. Yeah. Um, and obviously Jake. Like, I mean, he's just something yeah, else. Yeah, Jake's great. Stephen King, he writes kids really well. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I will save my longer comments on it. That's my one-sentence comment. I'll save my longer ones. We will hopefully now eventually be able to do a full Dark Tower episode now that I'm caught up and maybe you can one day watch the uh the movie. I'm going to I'll probably rewatch it now that I've that I've um read the books. There's really not spoilers in the movie for the books. Like there is in the sense that a lot of the same like overall stuff happens. Like they're still trying to bring back down the Dark Tower in the same way um and that sort of thing but there's no like real specific plot um spoilers from the series because it's meant to be a uh i guess the fact that it's a sequel is in itself a spoiler yeah <laughs> but um that it happens after the events of the books yeah but um but also just like idris elba is a delight to watch as this character yeah yeah so, yeah, I'll have to get around to the movie. Maybe, like, if they finally make some progress on the show, we'll do a big Dark Tower mm -hmm. episode. But we have plenty to talk about for this episode. We do. Um, which is, <laughs> once again, about what, Miss Mel? It's about Midsummer. <laughs> Midsummer. Midsummer. Today in March. In March. We're looking forward. Listen, it's it's uh, daylight savings this weekend. In a few weeks, and by a few weeks, I mean I think next weekend. It is um, spring equinox, whatever the hell it's called. First day of spring. 
which fun fact is getting a little bit earlier every year because we fucked up on our leap years. Good. I'm tired of winter. Well, so it's going to get like, and it's, you know, it's not by much. It's like by minutes at a time, but it's getting slowly earlier and earlier every year until we get to the year 2100 and then it'll, it'll reset and fix itself. But it's because we had a leap year in the year 2000. Really fucked and we us up. We weren't supposed to. Yeah, we weren't supposed to. Like well, we were in the sense that the rules we set said that we could, but the result is a fuck up for the next hundred years until it fixes itself. Leap year is leap year is so strange. Time doesn't matter. <laughs> Time is a flat circle, and it's also a flat circle. We've circled back to Matthew McConaughey. Yes, <laughs> who is in the Dark Tower movie. You know what's funny? I was putting together my dream cast in the stand, which I will reveal to you when we do our stand episode of like, okay, who would I cast? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I kept coming back to Matthew McConaughey because I do enjoy him and I think he has the capacity to be, to be a really good Walter or a really good Randall Flagg. But because he played, you know, Walter, Same. I was like, okay, we can't do that again. So I was like really struggling to find a different person. To come up with like someone who's never played the yeah. character before. Yeah, because I feel like that's cheating to say like, oh, Matthew McConaughey should do it. And then it's like, um. And it's like, no, oh, he already has and it was fine. And it was fine. Yeah, I feel, I feel like I was, whatever. Point <laughs> is, <laughs> Point is, it is, it is Sweden. It is middle of July. Well, not quite, because we don't start there. But um, no. this is where we're going. It's where we're going, and it's where we're going to end up being. With Ari Aster's Midsommar, there's a lot to talk about. Before we do, let's take a listen to the trailer. Tonight. What's happening? 
Okay, so Midsommar. 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 As the Gen Z kids say. I heard a couple yeah, TikTokers call it that and it got stuck in my brain. <laughs> it's also, you could, just, you could just quickly just be like Midsommar. Midsommar. And no one cares. Yeah. Um, it's more for like the spelling of it and the pronunciation of it. Yeah. We call it, uh, yeah. It's like, it's stylized as Midsommar, but it's pronounced Midsommar. Exactly. Just like the witch is stylized. With the double witch? <laughs> yeah, but you're not... I have a friend who I will talk about the witch to her, and she will undoubtedly, every time, before responding to anything, text me back the double V witch, and then be like, yeah, so anyway. <laughs> She'll be like, oh, I, you mean the witch? I mean, that's kind of funny. People who, like, actually do it drive yeah. me up a fucking no, wall. No, she does like, it as a joke. Stylization does not equate pronunciation. Yeah. And also, if you want the history on that, we used to do that because Vs were easier to make than Ws in stone. So they would just make Vs where, where there would be Us or Ws. It's not a pronunciation thing. It just stands out uh, for another letter. Yeah, it's like, it's like the Fs in the print, in the, for printing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, they were, they were Ss, right? They? Yeah, they yeah. were substituted for S's because um, it was just easier. It was easier. The S's would get too smudged. Massachusetts. Massachusetts. <laughs> so when did you first see this film and what were your impressions at the time? So I saw it when it came out. Like two or three weeks after it came out, I think. It took me a hot second to go see it. Um, saw it. I remember it being quite hot the day I saw it. <laughs> um, but yeah, my first impression of it was like, it's interesting because going into it, it's like, you know, I don't know what to, you know, expect with this. Um, sure. you know, like after some of the other stuff, it's like emotionally, how do I prepare for something after like hereditary? <laughs> um, yeah. Which to this day, I've only seen hereditary once. Like every time I think I can do it again. I'll like watch a YouTube video about Hereditary and I'll get really bummed out again. And, like, I that one really it. affected you. Yeah, I don't know why. Eventually I will. Maybe it's because I too have a life-threatening allergy, but also like that didn't even, that's not like what freaks me out, I think. I don't know what it is. Anyway, point is, so I'm going yeah. in, I see Midsummer. Um, I did like at the end of it, it was one of those things where I was like, that was surprisingly like cheerful. <laughs> I got to the end of it and I was like, you know what? Good for her. I mean, this is horrifying. But um, good for her. Mm. We're going to talk about that later. Mm -hmm. But yeah. Um, right. What about you? Yeah. So I, I, I checked my Letterboxd um, account. I saw this uh, opening night. Um, nice. Or like the, uh, you know, they don't really do midnight showings anymore. But I, I like the, probably it was like the 10 o'clock showing, I think. Mm-hmm. On July 2nd, it officially came out on July 3rd. Um, I remember really loving it at the time. I rated it really highly. I gave it a four out of five um, stars, which I think is the rating I would still give it now. Um, I, I feel like I had a similar reaction to you. I did not leave as 
bummed out as I left the theater after Hereditary. (laughs) I also saw Hereditary, like, at night. It was, like, winter. Yeah. That probably didn't help. Hereditary, mad depressing. Um, And I remember being very conscious at the time of uh, Aster having said that um, Midsommar was going to be um, so much of a, like, mirror to hereditary mm-hmm. and that he was um like rising to this challenge of like I can scare you just as well in broad daylight mm-hmm. kind of thing um and just being like yep you sure did <laughs> <laughs> I do remember talking about that with people where it was like okay like now he's like doing a sort of like it's got to be fucking terrifying or really upsetting if he's like purposefully being like it's daylight 20 hours out of the day in this film. Yeah. Yeah. Cause like all we get really of anything other than that is the opening, which is kind of like this amazing bridge between hereditary and midsummer. Um, Cause it's cold and dark when mm-hmm. the film opens. And then it's just like the brightest, most idyllic <laughs> setting you could possibly imagine after that. Um, where terrible things happen. Yeah. So, yeah. So, sounds like we were both big fans at the time. Yes. And we remain big fans. hmm So, let's move into some background uh, about the film. Uh, Midsummer is a folk horror film, um, as it's sort of like official classification. So, maybe uh, let's do some chit-chat about what that means, shall we? Yeah, hit me with it. Cool. So folk horror, for those that don't know, is a subgenre of horror that utilizes elements of folklore in its storytelling. So typical elements we might find in folk horror include rural, isolated settings, the power of nature, the darkness of hidden communities, and religion. And although supernatural elements can come into play, most folk horror derives its terror from the actions and beliefs of people rather than a preternatural entity. Focus of folk horror stories tend to be on outsiders coming into conflict or going up against these human actions and beliefs, with the clash of belief systems often being an overarching theme. Now, folk horror scholar Adam Scoville has written a lot about this subject over the years. And he cites the uh, 1952 Finnish horror film The White Reindeer as one of the, if not the first, examples of folk horror. Um, It's about a young bride who finds herself transformed into a vampiric reindeer which Uh is apparently a concept taken from uh, Finnish mythology and Sami shamanism. Hmm. Um, So a relatively old idea, I guess, in Finland. So the 50s, if we're going by the white reindeer, is sort of when folk horror, as we know it, crops up. It's interesting that you say that because you know what was going on in the 50s. 
repression. Well, that. <laughs> but the rebirth and rejuvenation of um, Earth-based religions, specifically mm. Wicca. Um, yeah. Wicca, I mean, Wicca was older than the 1950s. It's, you know, it first came into kind of lexicons and that sort of thing in the early 20th century, but the 50s was really like a boom, like in specifically in Great Britain, and then I think it spread to like the US. Um, there was a huge uptick in Wiccanism, people who identified as Wiccans or as neo pagans in some capacity. That's really interesting, especially because what I'm going to about to bring up very shortly. Okay. <laughs> okay, so let's keep that in mind. This boom in earth-based religion mm-hmm. that began in the 50s when the white reindeer pops up. Um, yeah, okay, so we've got that going on in the 50s. The term, though, folk horror wasn't mm-hmm. used at the time mm-hmm. to, de- to describe that, right? That term has only been around for like 15 years-ish, um, give or take a couple of years. Like 15 years from our... From our time. Yeah. Okay. It looks, it, um, so in 2004, um, Pierce Haggard, uh, di- director of um, the 1971 film The Blood on Satan's Claw, uh, is believed to be the first person who coined the term, he was doing an issue with an interview for an issue of Fangoria in 2004, talking about that film. And he said, I grew up on a farm and it's natural for me to use the countryside as symbols or as imagery. As this was a story about people subject to superstitions about living in the woods, the dark poetry of that appealed to me. I was trying to make a folk horror film, I suppose, not a campy one. I didn't really like the hammer campy style. It wasn't for me. Hmm. So a relatively recent term describing a subgenre that has been around for about 70 years now. So folk horror really though starts getting a lot of critical and scholarly attention after an episode of the 2010 BBC documentary series, A History of Horror. The episode was entitled Home County's Horror, and it featured Adam Scoville, who we mentioned, along with director, screenwriter, actor, general English dude, Mark Gatiss, um, discussing what Scoville called the unholy trinity of folk oh, horror yes. films. I have heard of, of this. Gr- I mean, obviously I know these films, but I have heard of the, the unholy trinity grouping before. Of, yes. Of so this is, this is what they are. It's Witchfinder General, uh, The Blood on Satan's Claw, and The Wicker Man. So in this episode of the series, uh, Gatiss and Scoville discuss how all three of these films subvert expectations have a countryside setting that emphasizes their landscape, plays with themes of isolation, both of community and of the individual, and are very nihilistic in their tones. Scoville goes on to suggest that the rise of the folk horror subgenre was a result of the New Age movement that grew from 1960s counterculture. Got him. Which, of course, 1960s counterculture was a response to 1950s mainstream conservative culture Mm -hmm. we're connecting yeah (laughs) 
See, that's what I find so fascinating about this stuff is like, you know, a hundred and so years from now, like anthropologists look at this stuff and say, okay, what can we, and you know, that's, I think it's an interesting way to even. The anthropologists will be like, uh, Josh and Christian. Yes. They'll be like, can we write about your, your, I'm going to steal your thesis. Um, not like just, you know, even now, if we were to look back at kind of stories and we kind of do like fairy tales and that sort of thing, but looking at just like what scared people, you know, mm-hmm. and why was that, you know, these things don't come from nowhere. Like, I think it's, you know, particularly interesting with like, if you look at different cultures that have different versions of the same thing, like the vampire and it's like, okay, why does the vampire as we, you know, for lack of a universal term, in Japan look this one way and a vampire in Romania look another way, you know, and all this other stuff. I just think it's a very fascinating way to, to look at history and culture by saying like, all right, what, what stories are people telling and specifically what stories were they telling to scare each other? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think we're seeing that here, right? Mm -hmm. Um, very much so. So yeah. So so those, so those three, right. And as a, as a, as a response, basically, um, to what Miss Mel brought up in the fifties. Um, and now other scholars have linked folk horror to the counterculture movement as well. Uh, Matthew Sweet, who is a British cultural historian observed that, um, the late 1960s counterculture, movement very much birthed a second wave of pop occultism um, that would go on to dominate film and TV in the 1970s and into the 1980s. So if we kind of maybe think of um, the 50s as being that first wave, you know, like, as you mentioned, and um, Aleister Crowley, I think, was mm-hmm. kicking around then yeah. and stuff Whatever, uh, so Church of Satan and all of that. Yeah, that starts. Our, I want to say in 1962. Okay, so yeah, yeah, yeah. That would that would check out. So now mm-hmm. we get this sort of second wave of pop occultism that carries us through the 70s and into the 80s, which I would think culminates in the Satanic Panic. Yes. Um, but what we've got going on at this point. Um, we see reflected through uh, examples like the unholy trinity of Witchfinder General, Blood on Satan's Claw, and The Wicker Man, but also um, in films like uh, Crowhaven Farm, in Stephen King's short story, The Children of the Corn, and the 1984 film adaption, which we have covered, mm-hmm. as well as The Dark Secret of Harvest Home. The Blight! Which we have also covered. <laughs> We covered The Dark Secret of Harvest Home, Children of the Corn, and The Wicker Man in our Harvest Horror series. We did. Many, many moons ago. Have been called a folk horror series. Yeah. Um, so this is clearly something that, uh, maybe without even realizing, we have been working in a lot yeah. with this podcast. We've been talking about a lot of folk horror. Yeah. Well, and even like, what is it, like ritual I think has probably elements of that in there too. Um, I don't know. There's something alluring. Have you seen Kill List? I have not. Oh yeah. Definite folk horror. Like there's something just so alluring about it. I don't know what it is. Like, I don't know if it's just like the connection between that and I make to fall and Halloween. Cause even like a lot of these, like, you know, both Wicker Man and Midsummer, you know, they don't, they take place in the summer or the spring. 
Um, mm-hmm. You know, they don't take place in this sort of traditional harvest time and that sort of thing. But I don't know. There's there's definitely something to be explored there about uh, fascinations with that. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, so Sweet cites those specific examples and has also written about recent examples of folk horror like Midsommar as well as The Witch from 2015 a film that we've not covered, but that we have both christened our favorite film of the 2010s decade. Yes, I enjoy that movie. So as well as uh, cinema, rural paganism formed the basis for a number of largely British television shows and movies from the 1970s. Um, The BBC used to run a program called Play for Today, Uh, that would air uh, television movies. And there's a bunch of examples of folk horror in there, including John Bowen's Robin Redbreast uh, and a photograph from 1970 and 77, respectively. David Rubkin's Pendus Fen from 74 and Alan Garner's Red Shift from 78. Along with several entries in the 1972 Dead of Night anthology show, such as The Exorcism. Uh, various adaptations of antiquarian ghost stories by M.R. James, which derive their horror and cursed objects, medieval superstition, occult practices, and witch trials, also provided a regular stream of folk horror uh, from Jacques Tournier's Night of the Demon, Jonathan Miller's Whistle and I'll Come to You, and Lawrence Gordon Clark's uh, Ghost Story for Christmas, which aired on the BBC for seven years straight <laughs> in the 1970s. ITV, the other major British network, was also producing a lot of folk horror. Um, They did Alan Garner's The Owl Service in 69, Nigel Neal's Beasts in 76, and um, the HTV drama television show Children of the Stones, which was a, a series that examined themes of ancient folklore that basically popped up in the modern world and caused havoc. Hmm. So really prevalent throughout the 70s. Sweet has also observed that occult and pagan elements appeared in children's programs at the time, including 70s episodes of Doctor Who um, and uh, Children of the Stones episodes that were geared towards children and involved archaeology, occult ritual, and chopper bikes. (laughs) You know, tying it all in. Yeah. he cites that series, Children of the Stone, specifically as part of a collective 60s come down. So basically this idea that in the 70s, we were now coming down from the countercultural movement of the 60s mm-hmm. and doing that through folk horror, which is interesting. And he cites, again, the Owl Service, Time Slip, The Tomorrow People, The Changes, and Raven as very strong examples of that. Nice. Interesting. Yeah. And if anyone is interested in looking further into folk horror and what it is and what it means, uh, the sources I used for this part of our conversation come from an article in The Guardian called Devils and Debauchery, Why We Love to Be Scared by Folk Horror. An article from The Irish Times called Beyond Midsommar, Folk Horror and Pop Fiction. Uh, various resources from the British Film Institute, Fangoria, A History of Horror, The Black Aquarius Archives, and the BFI Screen Online, and an article by Adam Scoville called Folk Horror, Hours Dreadful, and Things Strange. 
nifty. It's interesting because I feel like every time I've tried to dig into folk horror, it usually kind of, you know, it all coalesces around Wicker Man, Witchfinder General, and then doesn't really go beyond that. Um, because like even Harvest Home doesn't have a ton of mainstream writing about it. Um, yeah, very much so. Um, which is a shame. Yeah. Uh, particularly in regards to Harvest Home. I, um, will, sh will share this out after the episode goes up. Um, I found a great list that was by Scoville, which of 10 lesser known folk horror films. Um, that's where he talks about the white reindeer, um, as like the earliest example of folk horror, but there are nine other examples of there are films that, um, one or two of them I had heard of, but the rest I hadn't. So here's, and I wonder if even on that, incredible. On and they that... span from the fifties until like the most recent one came out in 2018, I think. Huh. So, I will share that list. There, it looks like there's a ton of great films on there. They're all on my list to watch. Um, I wonder if um, on that list, but just in general, that um, Soviet era horror film I watched a while back, V, based on the Gogol, uh, like that I would classify in this, you know, based on this conversation as folk horror because it, you know, it Gogol invented kind of this character claiming you know trying to do the whole like postmodern back in the day postmodern yeah. thing of like um you know being like oh this is real this is a real folklore character and it wasn't but it was based off of real you know folklore it was based off concepts of vampirism and you know it's set in rural ukraine um you know it is overtly supernatural in a way that i think other folk horror is not but it's interesting to think about it in that context, because I didn't think about it in that way previously. Yeah, but now maybe. Now maybe I that will. We're, we're kind of yeah, we're getting into this like what is folk horror? It kind of changes things. Yeah, I pulled up the list real quick. I won't I won't go through it, but um, it's not on there, which I think is interesting. Okay. Uh, but there's some good looking stuff on there. Some good looking stuff. Um. So oh, yeah, so that's kind of an gets... idea of what folk horror is. And I think if people listening have seen Midsommar, they see very much how this film follows in that tradition. Yeah. Um, but there are other ways to read the film mm -hmm. separate from folk horror. Um, do we want to get into that now or do we want to do some some more background about the film itself and, and move that more to our analysis. What do you yeah, think? Let's do some background about the film and then talk about, because I feel like the folk horror was a good setup for kind of okay. going into going into yeah. it. Cool. So let's talk about the film itself. So this was Ari director, Ari Esther's second film after uh, 2018's hereditary. Um, he has not gone on to direct anything else just yet, but I'm sure he's working on something. I think he said that he wants to move away from horror for a while. I remember him saying that around when Midsummer came out and being very disappointed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although yeah. I would honestly watch anything he, he writes and directs, but, um. Oh, totally. I just think like 
with these two films, I'm like, please work in horror forever. Yeah. But, you know, I know um, as a creator, he probably doesn't want to be bound yeah. by, by one thing. But anyway, so... So Astor was approached by Be Real Films, which was a Swedish production company that wanted him to helm a slasher film that was set in Sweden. The plan was for Square Peg to co-produce with Be Real and for A24 to distribute. Astor rejected this offer because when he took a look at the proposed um, story beats he really didn't like see himself in it he couldn't find a way into the story as he describes it but after having a really bad breakup in 2014 he sort of came up with a way to frame this story to make it work for him so he wrote as he says a breakup movie and then dressed it up as a folk horror film and used his work on the screenplay to work through the demons, the personal demons he was wrestling with in regards to his breakup. So this film was in development for a long time before it hit, it hit theater. So it seemed like it was almost, so this was after Hereditary or before Hereditary, because this came out fairly quickly after Hereditary did. Yeah, so this came out like a year after Hereditary. So this must have been in development before Hereditary. It was It was definitely written before Hereditary. Yeah. Um, but what we'll see is, so, yeah, so in May of 2018, the film was ready to begin pre-production. The screenplay was finalized. Aster was on board. Um, he was announced as writer and, dire and director by A24 in May. On June 8th, 2018, Hereditary premieres. Mm -hmm. On June 9th, 2018, Aster and all of the crew leave for Hungary to start <laughs> filming Midsommar. So he did all the Hollywood glam for a night and then shipped out. Nice. Um, so yeah, so the film set in Sweden. It was filmed in Hungary. They scouted for locations outside of Budapest and found an untended field that Astor thought was just perfect. So that field, under the direction of production designer Heinrich Svensson, the crew built 10 whole buildings, some of them three stories tall, as well as a bunch of other various structures to create the village of Harga that we see in the film. Everything there was built from the ground up. That wasn't a pre-existing settlement or anything like that. Oh that's all. That's all. Sides. Um, but sets built for the film, which is really cool. Uh, additionally, during this time, costume designer Andrea Flesh and her team handmade every dress, rock, shoe, and hat for the villagers. They used 100-year-old linen and original, unique, runic designs for each character. That's a lot of work. Yeah, but he would be a freak um, about that. He would totally be a freak about that. He would totally be a freak about that. So this world is coming to life. This village is being built. The, the clothes are being put together. Everything that's going to like um, 
populate this world. The cast gets finalized within uh, a month after they head out. Then they're flown out, they join the crew and start doing principal photography beginning on July 30th of 2018. They film for about three months and wrap in regards to the cast, uh, there's a lot of talk about how they all hung out a ton before and during filming because they wanted to foster a genuine dynamic of friendship and really bring across uh, the complexities of what it means to be a group of friends and like one of your friends has their girlfriend and is she really your friend or is she your friend's girlfriend? You know, mm -hmm. they wanted to all of that sort of like baked in to their dynamic. Uh, Florence Pugh talks about how excited she was to um, work on a film with Jack Rayner and Will Poulter. Um, Will Poulter she and had his eyebrows. Both of their work and his eyebrows. <laughs> um, she and uh, Jack Rayner, I guess, ended up becoming like really good friends on set. And now they're like super involved in each other's lives and like they text each other every day, I guess. And they're like best buddies, best, um, best. which I guess is a fun, cute anecdote yeah. um, to take away, especially since their characters. Nothing else about them is cute. <laughs> Yeah, 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 the people they play aren't cute, but they themselves, I guess, are um, pretty close in real life. He, he comes over for brunch on Sundays with her and Zach Braff, and they just hang out. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. um, Aster had wanted to cast Pew after he saw her in Lady Macbeth, um, the film that was her first lead performance and started sort of kind of getting her a lot of attention in Hollywood. So he wanted to work with her and he really wanted to work with Jack Rayner because he had seen him on the TV show, strange angel. And so, um, he sort of hooked both of them in and then built the rest of the cast out, um, sort of around them. This is a good segue, I guess, to do our roll call. Yeah. For who is in this film <laughs> and what are they doing? So, by billing order, we have Florence Pugh as Danny Arder. Um, thumbs up or thumbs down on this performance? Oh my god, I love Florence Pugh could kill a man. <laughs> I love in, in Little Women how, first of all, they tried to make them all younger than they were, but they were like, Florence Pugh can play 13. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, so um, great performance. Thumbs up. Uh, she had been um, well. She had she had made her debut about five years earlier in a film called The Falling, and then she had her first lead in Lady Macbeth in 2016, and then in 2019 she exploded yeah everyone wants florence Pugh for everything because she was in fighting with my family that weird boxing movie with the rock yes. or not boxing ultimate wrestling i don't know i don't know i, I think know. it's ultimate ultimate fighting champion ultimate fighting champion I'm saying yeah. it like what's his face 
so she's in that. She's in Midsummer, and then of course she's Amy in Little Women, and like Florence Pugh is everywhere. Um, she would uh, go on to um, get cast in uh, the Black Widow movie. Uh huh. Um, that is yet to come out, as well as a. She looks great um, in the trailers, though. Yeah, as well as a horror film called Don't Worry Darling, which is also supposed to come out this year. So, she is Danny. She does a great job. Uh, next, we have Jack Rayner as Christian Hughes. Thumbs up, thumbs down. I liked him. I think what's interesting about Christian's character is, like, they muted his emotions. Like, he doesn't really ever have an emotional response to anything. Um, yeah. But Jack Rayner does a really good job playing, like, just a doofus asshole in that and like you know really owning the fact that this guy has no emotional range because he has no emotional range and just sort of you know not trying to like um inorganically you know put something in there for the sake of you know acting it's just like no like this is this is what this guy is yeah well i think for me with with christian and like Rainer's performance, which I really like, because this is a tough character to play, I feel like, mm-hmm. um, is that, like, Christian... Christian is, like, so... one lane... Yeah. ...that... It just makes sense. Like, everything he does makes sense. Yeah. Even if it's, like, we don't like what Christian is doing. I'm like, I, I understand why he's doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, because he's just, like, he's such a believable character. I think everybody yeah. knows a Christian. Yeah. Um, whereas, like, with some of the other characters... Like, Will Poulter's playing, like, a, a type, right? Yeah. Will Poulter's definitely playing, like, a type. Um, Harper is kind of playing a type. Mm-hmm. He's playing the only type he's going to play if he's not I careful. I know. I'm really worried <laughs> for him. Um, Rainer plays, like, a person. Yeah. Um, which I appreciate. So, yeah. Okay. So... Then, then we have William Jackson Harper as Josh. Um, I, I give him, a, I give this performance a thumbs up. But yeah. I, I mean, he's he's definitely good at this type of character. Yeah, I'm like you're playing cheaty. Yeah. Um. So it's like I already kind of knew you could do this. Yeah. Yeah, like uh, what's interesting about Josh is like where you know where. Pele and Mark stand when it comes to Danny like you don't really know Josh's stance on that because like all we really get about Josh is that he's an anthropologist student graduate student and this is something he's really excited about um yeah like we don't really get much beyond that like I don't I don't you know does he have a boyfriend a girlfriend a a non-binary partner like I don't know (laughs) right 
And maybe that's supposed to be the point of Josh, Mm -hmm. but you know, that he's so like academically driven, but I don't know. Maybe we should have, I think, I think we should have like seen that more if that's supposed to be the point of him. Yeah. Like, I don't know. Yeah. It's a, it's a fine performance though. Yeah. Um, Wilhelm Blomgren as Pele. Nice, nice Swedish man. I feel like he, well, I feel like he does good at being like, you, you're not sure about him. Like you look at him and he seems like the nice guy and he's good at being very kind and welcoming, but you're never quite 100% sure. Yeah. There's something about him where I remember even watching this in theaters and like, Because with this film, right, you know something bad's going to happen. You just don't know what. Yeah. And, like, kind of expecting Pele to do something, like, really vicious and villainous. um, And just really not trusting him. And be like, that's a facade. That's a facade. Yeah. (laughs) I think interesting about the character is that, like, he is kind of genuine. Yeah. And yeah. like the really like the cruel vicious thing that he does is already done by the 20 minute mark. Like by like is already done by them yeah, going like, to Sweden. Yeah. You know, just bringing them there. Yeah, it's interesting because like with him it's like he's so genuine in that he, you know, it's it's that he believes this is the thing, right? Like, you know, nothing about their way of life, what they do seems wrong to him. So like, yes, there's some subterfuge and yes, like, obviously he knows he has to know on some level what he's doing is wrong by bringing these unsuspecting people, you know, who did not consent to become sacrifices, you know, to his, to his commune. But like, he believes he's doing it because it's like the only thing he's, you know, he's ever known, been taught what to do and these are people he you know he genuinely loves like you know he has that whole scene which I think is a really important scene for stuff I'm going to talk about in a bit you know with Danny where he talks about his his parents had died and the community just really rallied around him to help raise him and take him in and it's like you know it's it's almost really tough to like fault him or them when it's like they really do just care about each other and this is the way that they exist even if from our perspective it seems like really horrifying objectively which i think you know we'll talk about is really what esther was going for yeah um but yeah pele embodies that really well i think um and then for the rest of our main cast uh, and um as mark he was good. He was Will Poulter playing this goofy character who I enjoyed, who I knew was going to die in some stupid way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then it's like, oh, you doomed yourself because you pissed on the sacred tree? That checks out. Yeah. Um, yeah, I would say thumbs up. But just sort of, yeah, it's... It's Will Poulter. I'm not going to ask Will Poulter to do anything crazy, right? Like, Yeah. I want to see what I want to see. I'm not opposed to seeing that. Yeah. But like, oh, okay, if you're putting him in this role, I know what I want from you. He gave me what I wanted from it. Yeah. 
Um, and then just real quick, uh, there's a large cast in, in the rest of this film. Um, and I don't, everyone is named by character and I don't know who a lot of people are. So we're just going to go through the couple people who I do know who they are. Okay. Um, we've got Ella Retorchia as Connie and Archie, um, Medequa as Simon. Are these the old people? They are the other couple that are brought to visit by Ingemar, who is played by, uh, Hampus Hallberg. Um, yes, right, right, right. Yeah. She's like, uh, I think she's, um, Indian. Maybe, and then he's the boyfriend, and like yeah. he disappears first, and then she's like, what the hell? Where did he go? And they're like, oh, he went to the bus stop, and... Yeah. Yeah. Or whatever. Um, both fine, both I think. Fine, I think. Uh, the guy that plays Ingmar Hallberg, fine. Fine. Yeah. Um, very friendly. Very, like, very natural. I'm like, oh, I believe you are a person. Yeah. Uh, Heinrich Norlin as Ulf. Ulf is the guy that gets really upset. Yeah, yeah. The tree, and then he volunteers himself at the end. Um, which, good, I think. Yeah. Gunnel Fred as Siv. She seems to be, like, the leader of Harga. She's, like, the female elder that leads all the mm-hmm. rituals. Um, um, again, again, fine, fine I, think. I think. Yeah. And then and Isabel then Grill, Grill as Maya, Maya who is, um, the redheaded, red-headed pube dropper, pube dropper <laughs> that, uh, <laughs> has designs. And she doesn't even really have designs really on designs Christian. On it's, she's just sort of just like, I'm, she just sort of uses sort of him for what she, wants. what she wants. Yeah. Cause as soon as it's done, she's like, Right. Like, it's not so much about Christian as much as it's about, like... Yeah, a means to an end. end. Yeah. Yeah. And so... And so, yeah. Yeah. So, do we now want to talk a bit about... Some analysis of something? Sure. You had some things you wanted to tell us. I did, because I had this thought. I think it was last summer. Um... When I was reading through a nice book you got me um, called Men, Women, and Chainsaws, uh, Gender in, colon, Gender in the Modern Horror Film by Carol J. Clover, um, which is basically, she's a professor of um, film and like medieval studies and I think a couple other things at the University of California. But she's published a lot about horror Um, And she basically collected together a bunch of different essays that she had published and put them together in this book that explores, like, gender in horror film throughout, like, basically the mid-century into the late 20th century. I will say, you know, for anyone looking to read this book, it is a little bit dated in terminology when it comes to, like, gender identities and people with cognitive disabilities. So just be aware of that. Like, it came out in the 90s. Um... But it's really it's a really interesting book, um, and there's an entire chapter in there on what um, I I call in general like I prefer to call in general a revenge film just because the term rape and revenge is like a harsh term. I don't yeah. like saying like 
rape a lot. So, um, but she goes through, like, classic horror revenge films. Um, I Spit on Your Grave, The Hills Have Eyes, Deliverance, Last House on the Left, like, this sort of spate of them that came out in the 70s. And they all feature a very similar formula. It's interesting that in folk horror you bring up, you know, the fact that there's this sort of, um, tension between belief systems because one of the elements of a revenge film is often urbanization versus rural life like that's usually epitomized in in the characters um and their vengeance um but basically the general formula for like a horror revenge film and a lot of revenge films in general is a woman or what she refers to as sort of like a, a feminine coded man, like what you see in Deliverance. Um, which, and she goes into all of that about how the horror, horror films will like take pains to take, you know, code a man who is going to be like sexually assaulted and, you know, make him seem feminine to, to the audience. Um, sure. But sure. yeah, I think we see, I that, think we see that even outside of even horror. Outside of- yeah. Um, no, she she has a whole section about it because she's like deliverance yeah. may seem like the exception to the rule, but actually what's going on here is like they code shift on like what <clears throat> is male, female, feminine, and masculine to like make this make sense in their context. But anyway, so somebody in a, a feminized role um, is assaulted sexually and physically. They go through a period of physical and emotional rehabilitation. And then they exact revenge against their enemies, which makes up like the last chunk of the film. Um, most films will focus on the first act and the last act as like their bulk, like specifically I Spit on Your Grave, like the attack scene is like a half hour of the film's runtime. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then, you know, there's montages of her piecing herself back together piecing her like ripped up manuscript and and stuff back together until she goes on her her killing spree of her attackers and that sort of thing like that's where the focus is in these sort of graphic violent and gory um sequences of just like you know horrible violence um and there's a lot that can be said and has been said by smarter people about why that is and why we enjoy it and and when I say we, I don't mean like us. Like, I mean, like in general, society has proven it likes these things. Yeah. yeah. Um, and there's a lot that can be said about that. But that's, we're not going to talk about that right now. Um, specifically, what I think is interesting about Midsummer is that it focuses in on that middle section. And it kind of takes, um, it looks at like the actual act of rehabilitation after a trauma. Like the first thing it does is it makes the point that sexual assault is not the only trauma that a woman can face, the same way that the only trauma a queer person can face is not homophobia or biphobia or transphobia, etc. Like, people have lives and interiority outside of, you know, these identities, right? Mm -hmm. So for Danny, the trauma she endures is obviously, you know, in this first scene, or the first, the the cold open, essentially. um, Yeah. She is worried that her, she's been getting like threatening emails from her sister who has, um, a bi- has bipolar disorder and now her sister's not answering and she's not answering her phone and her parents aren't answering their phone and she's a little bit worried. Um, 
And, you know, this is the first scene where we see Christian's kind of an asshole because he sort of, like, she calls him, like, hey, this is kind of concerning me. And he kind of gaslights her and basically says she allows her sister to do this to her and manipulate her this way. And she's like, all right, you're fine. You're right. Like, I'll stop. She gets a call later from the fire department that um, there's essentially been a murder-suicide. Her sister has um, killed their parents via carbon monoxide poisoning and also herself and it's horrifying and there's this you know you know like gut-wrenching scene of christian who five minutes previous to getting a phone call from danny explaining all this had been talking through breaking up with her with his friends he's now holding her while she's screaming and crying on her very tiny little couch in her apartment (laughs) it's the smallest couch um, you know, and it looks, you know, imagery wise, like it looks a lot like these scenes that you would see of women post, you know, trauma or assault having, you know, being on the floor screaming and crying and that sort of thing. Um, you know, and basically he, you know, we fast forward a few months and he's like a hindrance to her ability to kind of cope with this, right? Because he's not super emotionally there. Um, he's not actively trying to break up with her, but he, like, forgets her birthday at one point. He misremembers how many years they've been together. He doesn't tell her that he's going on this trip and then sort of, like, reluctantly says, okay, you can come. Yeah. Like, there's not a lot she's getting from him that she clearly needs. Um, and basically, her time at the Harga, like, you know, is that sort of rehabilitation period, right? And I think it's really encapsulated in Pele's conversation with her, where he says, you know, like, do you feel held? Like, when I was um, <clears throat> a boy and my parents died, you know, I was I was taken in by people, you know, they cared about me, they took care of me, I felt held by my community. And he was like, do you feel held by Christian and by your community after this horrible, horrible thing that had happened to her? And, you know, as she starts to realize, you know, okay, maybe I, do, I don't. Um, and she, you know, really starts to flourish. Like, she wins their crazy dance competition to become the May Queen. When she witnesses uh, Christian having sex with another woman, you know, the the other women, like, sort of, like, surround her and start screaming and crying with her. Like, you know, yeah. this sort of shared... <clears throat> um, you know, tragedy about it. Um, you know, so she, the entire movie is her going through this, right? It's going through the grief process, going through the healing process, the re- rehabilitation process after, you know, a trauma that we would see in the normal revenge film. Yeah. And then at the end, you know, she cuts her ties. She does get this sort of quote unquote revenge by basically saying, you know, she is given the choice when it comes to this final sacrifice who to put in, um, you know, this this building that they're going to burn. And they don't say you have to pick Christian. They say you can pick whoever you want. She makes the choice to put <coughs> Christian in uh, right. the, the flaming barn tent building. It's like a weird structure. Um, you know, and... She goes through, you know, as that's happening, she's screaming, everyone's screaming, it's like part of the whole thing. And then she looks and the final shot is her like kind of smiling a little bit towards what's going on. (laughs) Um, So we'll analyze that 
in and of itself. But I think it's a really interesting take on kind of like what kind of traumas people go through. You know, where our focus should be in these trauma films or in these revenge films. And then, you know, the fact that the the trauma itself and the revenge itself isn't doesn't have to be the focus, doesn't have to be this exploitive um thing we just sort of gawk at. And I think another, you know, example of that sort of <clears throat> is um <clears throat> I am like I don't have COVID. I've just been talking a lot and I have my allergies really kicked in today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Listen, I went to the dentist and they checked my temperature and everything today. I'm fine. <laughs> um, but I do have a cavity. <laughs> oh, no. I know. I have to go back on Thursday. Um, but, like, Promising Young Woman, like, is getting yeah. kind of billed as a revenge, rape and revenge film, which it's really not. It's about a woman who doesn't know how to cope and isn't, isn't being given the tools in society to cope with this horrible thing that has happened. Um, and I think that's interesting because up until now, you know, every film about this sort of thing has been woman is, you know, attacked, you know, woman goes around and cuts dudes dicks off and that's somehow supposed to be feminist and, and, and empowering when I think something like this is way more interesting and way more, um, respectful of like the interiority of a human being you know the same way that like you know like I, I i pointed out in thinking about this like get out is yes a film about a black man set upon by like parasitic white neoliberals but it's you know that's it's also about a man who's going to see his 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 girlfriend's family for the first time like that's really what it's about yeah um, you know, in bad hair, you know, obviously it's about the nightmarish relationship women, black women can have with their hair, but it's also about a woman who's really struggling to succeed in her industry. Like these movies don't have to be about the, you know, the identity somebody presents and, and everything that goes with it. Like, yes, that's part of it, but you know, if anything, that's, you know, that's the larger theme, you know, that we take away from this stuff. This is what's happening in the movie. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it's layers, yeah, it's right? Layers, and it's right? readings, it's readings and it's how you approach, how a, film, you approach a film. And it's all of those things and none of those things all at once. Mm -hmm. You know? You know. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, uh, what a great what a angle great to come at come this, at film, this at. film at. Oh, thank you. You know, you know. Especially just because, especially just because like, like Kind of as we talked about, like, because it's a folk horror film, people are so quickly to just say, oh, it's just that and nothing else. Yeah. And it's like, well, actually, here's some other things it might be. Yeah. And like I said, like, even sort of like vestiges of folk horror have similarities with revenge horror. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Like, different forces. Like, you definitely see here something that exists in both is the tension between, you know, urban and, and rural. You know, you see it probably most prominently in, like, Deliverance, but <coughs> we see it here, too. Yeah, we, d we definitely see it here. I mean, think about, um, 
the reluctance for the elders to give Christian and Josh permission, you know, Mm -hmm. to use specific details and names and locations for their thesis, right? Like, that's kind of a quiet example, but that's, um, this community depends on isolation and they know that. Mm-hmm. Um, they can't afford they can't to be encroached, encroached upon by, by uh, the outside the world. Outside world. Um, um, yeah, really yeah. interesting reading. And I think kind of like you were saying, like looking at this as a revenge film and, um, you know, there are ways to explore this kind of story that are less ex- exploitive than maybe past efforts like I Spit on Your Grave and like Deliverance and like Last House on the Left um, is just also reflective of like our larger society and how we talk about these things and how we talk about trauma and the idea of trauma. Um, Whereas when those films were being made, that was sort of like the worst possible thing that could happen, that could happen to, yeah. to, to someone, to someone <clears throat> usually a woman. Um, and not that it's and not that the worst possible thing that could happen, but, but we, we have so much of a larger of a understanding, understanding that there are different there are kinds different of trauma, kind of trauma. That, yeah. that can wreck a person. And there are different there are kinds, of, um, kinds of, um, forms of abuse. Forms of abuse. Yeah. Right. Uh, gaslighting, uh, gas something that Christian something does, Christian a, does lot a lot to, to Danny to throughout Danny the film, the film. Um, and how harmful, and how that, harmful can that can be. Yeah, it's interesting because and, there's not and, really a scratch on Danny at all, ever, right? Like, physically. But yeah. she is, like, so, <clears throat> you know, emotionally beaten up and broken. And, you know, like, Christian never hurts her. Christian never physically assaults her you know that we know like, of he, he, i think he does love her mm-hmm. i think he just he's not in love with her right you know and and that's another thing about this film that i think those earlier films we don't get as much and not necessarily that we should given what they're about but just that um like these these characters are really complex, right? Yeah. There's no like no one is sort of just like one thing. Christian is looking for a way out of his relationship, but he doesn't take action. He doesn't know how to do that because he's the last like light like sort of lifeline that Danny has. Yeah, it's like impossible to blame him honestly yeah, and like, for that because it's like you... I wouldn't be able to do that. Either. Exactly. Like you think about yourself and you're like I wouldn't do it. Because what kind of dick does that? Of course, he ends up being a dick in other ways. But, like, we we understand a lot about where he's coming from as well. This is a very realized film, I feel like. I know. Part of it, it's like I want, like, Ari Aster's memoir about, like, what the fuck happened in his relationship that, you know, spawned this. This is the memoir. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I think it's yeah, a subtle it's film. Subtle I think film. it's a quiet it's film. Quiet and, I film. Think it's, and I think it's a film that encourages, encourages us, us to piece together piece what's, together being, what's said. being said. And I think what's, I being, think said what's being said is... Um, is um, a 
a lot of different things. things. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, because I mean, and I feel like you've had something you want to sort of talk about with the last scene and the smile. Yeah. Yeah. So, so so Aster talks a lot about, um, he, well, he saw this film as a companion and in conversation with hereditary because both films are dealing with family. Both films are dealing with, um, codependency, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see that a lot in, in this film. Um, and both, and both, and both films kind of end up dealing with like perverse wish fulfillment. Um, and so, and, and specifically in regards to the ending, he, he, he wanted it to be something that was really hard for us as the viewer to contend with. He said he, he wanted there to be that catharsis. But that but it that felt it wrong, felt wrong mm-hmm. to have that catharsis. Have that catharsis. He, said he, he said he wanted people to be moved, to be moved but also, also unsettled. unsettled. And, mm-hmm. ultimately, and ultimately for people to be people confused, to be confused about, how about how they were feeling. Were feeling. So, so I thought it would be interesting if we looked at what the screenplay actually says about that final moment. Oh, okay. Lay it on me. Yeah, and so this is what is written. A smile finally breaks onto Danny's face. For some, this smile might recall the photo of Danny in her parents' bedroom at the beginning of the film. She has surrendered to a joy known only by the insane. She has lost herself completely, and she is finally free. It is horrible, and it is beautiful. Cut to black. Wild. A sort of a happiness known only by the insane. Yeah. I love that line. And I love... It is horrible and it is beautiful, beautiful. which Which apparently is something that he used in the screenplay a lot, that phrase. phrase. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any any gut reactions? I mean, it is one of those things where it's like, I think you want it to be happy. Like you want to insert some sort of fairy tale ending and assume like, oh, everything's fixed. Her her emotional distress is fixed. She won't have any PTSD from this ever again. Um, <laughs> you know, and that's like what you want to happen. But it's, you know, really what you're witnessing is, yeah, a woman probably having like a breakdown that she should have had, you know, months ago. Right. Um, right. You know, so in that regard, it is a catharsis, but it is all, you know, it's also like, okay, you know, we're stopping at the catharsis. We don't get to see what comes next, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Like, what does it look like when, when you know, the, the chemicals in everyone's brains calm down? And, you know, what does the morning after look like? Well, yeah. And what's interesting, you bring up, um, uh, use the phrase chemicals, sort of maybe uh-huh. like talking about the, the euphoria that she's feeling, right, in that moment. Um, but also the fact that, like, uh, they were manipulated, uh, they were manipulated into, into this situation, situation. Yeah. With, drugs. with drugs. Um, um Christian, is, Christian drugged is drugged in order to have sex with Maya. Sex with Maya. And, and Danny is drugged Danny with a tea, tea for, for 
you know, for the dance, the dance and everything. And everything. Um, um, so, so it's, it's, it's like, ah, like, did, no. did we reach we this reach moment this of catharsis, catharsis like by their own by their free own will? will? Not, not really. And that adds a really interesting layer to things too. Yeah. You know, what's interesting. It took like my third watch of this film before I finally noticed that the background and the props in the movie are constantly like shimmering and wavy. Yes. Yes. And like the food on the table is like moving and stuff because they're constantly on shrooms. Yeah. And like the flowers pulse and stuff. Yeah. 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 Oh yeah. The flowers in her, in her, her crown like open and close. Yeah, so there's like there's this thing, right, where we're, we're like we're sort of we're cheering for Danny because there is there is that freedom, right? There is this this processing of this trauma that she is able to let go and this sort of punishment of Christian, but they're not like neither of them are sober when they make the decisions that lead to this conclusion. Yeah, they're they're. There are other people people pulling and prodding them in a certain direction. And it's like, oh, what do we make of that? that? Yeah, because, I mean, you could take the one approach that, like, you know, and this is a dangerous approach to take without any sort of context. But, you know, the fact that these things do lower inhibitions, um, you know, and people might do things that they wouldn't normally do while sober, but might have been thinking about doing which again doesn't doesn't mean consent is not there like you know the fact that they're drugged and they're doing this doesn't mean that they're consent consenting to doing it right right but you know like christian cheating on danny you know while under the influence of shrooms and stuff is like yeah he was looking for a way out of the relationship you know that's the exact activity that people do to get out of relationships when they don't know what else to do you know a lot of times. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, like that, you know, that's an example. I think Danny doesn't necessarily know what she needs. Um, you know, and Pele has that conversation with her that steers her, which, you know, in this context, is that conversation manipulative? Yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, <laughs> would Danny in any other situation have said, yeah, you can put Christian in the bear suit and set him on fire? Like, Probably not. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> um, but, you know, so I think there's definitely a reading there, but I would say a reading with an asterisk because I'm not advocating for <laughs> anyone under the influence doing anything. <laughs> right, 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 right. You know, right, right. but... um. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think yeah, kind of what we're getting at is, getting um, is, is really what Aster really wanted, wanted, right? right? Is this, is this really conflicting... Really conflicting multi-layered way way to read this ending ending. that is both beautiful beautiful and horrible horrible. um Um, at the same time time. we love we love we love a complicated story story. yeah and that's the thing is is i love something that i'm able to talk about two years later and just you know and say hey i thought of this new thing yeah and yeah always coming up with new things and i even caught stuff rewatching it for this episode i mean there's so much put in there right to like Mm -hmm. like, we're told exactly how this is gonna end yeah well and it's all in the beginning too in the the artwork 
yeah it's in the artwork um there's even like in their apartment when um when he wakes her up before that party there's a big portrait of a bear over her bed nice that's like being like it looks like it's been like taken down in a hunt um and like yeah just like subtle things i caught this time around like um when they get high they get the first high, time first and Mark's time, like, Mark's like, I don't like new people. I don't like new people. And, um, and, um, I like <laughs> yeah, cause yeah. That one guy, that one guy, like, that oh, one guy walks by and they're like, Oh shit. Who's that? Yeah, He's yeah, new. But then Pele's like, Oh no, no Mark. New people are good. Which is like a clue, right? Because like new people are good for the village. Like new blood needs to be brought in. Yeah. So just like so little, just things, like like little that, things like that that I that I, that I caught that I caught um, on the rewatch and rewatch stuff. stuff. So so yeah, tons, yeah, here. tons here. A really good a film really good for something film like that. Like that. Um, uh, there was a fun detail a fun I think detail we wanted to share about, about uh, more on a production more side of things about, things about um, um, filming the big filming like the big meal scenes. Yeah. There's a few things. Yeah, it looks yeah, like it Florence like Pugh actually just actually mentioned something about it the other day. Yes, on her Insta. I think actually, specifically, I might be misremembering this, but I think she was like, Happy International Women's Day. Here's some facts from <laughs> when I filmed Midsummer. Oh my God. Um, She's on the same page as us. Yeah, I think that's what it was, to be honest with you. Yeah, apparently it was like the hottest summer on record in Hungary. Uh, while they were filming, so all of the food um, for the meal scenes, which was real, ended up like rotting and uh, becoming infested with maggots, which uh, was pretty uncomfortable for the actors. Yeah, she said it. Um, it took them three days to shoot those scenes, and by the end of it, she was like, "All the food on there like smelled like vomit." Like, it was disgusting. Um, she said everybody there, the table was mirrored. So uh-huh. everybody there had, like, a pair of sunglasses in their pockets in between takes that they would pull out. And it got to the point where people would try and, like, come up with reasons to be like, well, I think my character would wear sunglasses. <laughs> <laughs> and you just imagine, people were Ari Aster being like, no. No sunglasses. No, yeah, no, I, I, people were not having it. Um, they also had under the the tables umbrellas for people, and uh, you can actually see production pictures of people like popping umbrellas to like keep the sun off them when they weren't in between. Insane. Yeah, but um, yeah, it was basically it was basically little tidbits about the heat and the sun, but I didn't realize. Like, and looking back on it, I was like, yeah, they're all like really squinting in that scene. <laughs> They are, yeah. Yeah, apparently it was mad hot. There was, um, they talked about uh, the dance sequence, too. Um, oh, yeah. You know, the Maypole thing, which was, uh, that was, that was shot over two days. They used, like, a wheeled steady cam in between the two rows. But apparently that was, that was kind of rough because it was so hot. And obviously they had to be, like, dancing. Yeah. And, like, Florence Pugh talks about in the one interview on the Blu-ray, like, um, Ari Aster Ari had them Aster like had them, they, choreographed they choreographed the dance, the dance in rehearsal, in rehearsal like, with, like the camera, with the camera, basically. Basically, so that when they so got, out, when they got there, out there, 
around the maypole, they could just replicate exactly what they had practiced, but um, just like how difficult that was. Yeah. To basically like always be performing for the camera. Yeah. Yeah. So, some other quick notes about the film itself in terms of how it was received. Received. Uh, the film premiered at the Alamo Draft House in New York City on June 18th of 2019 before its wide theatrical release in the U.S. on July 3rd, and its premiere in Sweden a week later on July 10th. It ended up grossing $27.5 million in the U.S. Canadian box office and $20.5 million internationally for a total worldwide box office of 48 million against its nine million dollar budget so did pretty well uh currently has a rotten tomato score of 83 percent a metacritic score of 72 and an imdb rating of 7.1 i did not double check but i believe those are all somewhat lower than hereditary's reception on those three platforms um, um, I've heard most people, and they say this about Hereditary too a bit, but I feel like a lot of people go into this and come out saying like, well, it wasn't even scary. And it's like, yeah, well, you're reading it, you're, look, you're looking at it. If this isn't scare you, then, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, then, teach you know, their own, but. Teach their own, teach but, their like, own but like, this film is terrifying. Film is terrifying. <laughs> yeah. Um. um now, critically, uh, positive reviews of the film pointed out uh, its ambition, the impressive crafting, uh, Pew's performance, and how unsettling the finished product is, as well as singling out Ari Aster as a filmmaker to watch and a horror director with no peer, according to a review from Time Out. Good for him. Yeah. Yeah. More critical reviews cited some pacing issues, muddled themes, a lack of character buildup, and Astor's ambition falling just a bit short in the actual execution. I could see the character criticism just because I feel like some characters are playing, um, like, you know, roles, like parts. Yeah, yeah, I I agree with that. I think we touched on that a bit, particularly in regards to Josh and Mark. I definitely don't feel like we know them as well as we know Danny and Christian. Yeah, I see that too. Pacing? Not so much with Yeah, I don't really see the pacing. I mean, it's a long movie, but I don't see the pacing. Yeah, it's long, but it doesn't drag. No. Yeah, like, there's no section of it where I would say it's like, okay, cut this out, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but interestingly, uh, uh, Astor's actually original cut, the director's cut, was 170 minutes long, which is an extra half an hour. It's like the Snyder cut. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, those 30 minutes were trimmed at the request of A24. Um, but the director's cut did have kind of a, a limited showing. Um, they showed it at Lincoln Center on August 20th of 2019 and then showed it theatrically for one weekend, the weekend of August 29th, before it was released as an Apple TV exclusive on September 24th and released on limited Blu-ray in July 2020. 
um, following the more wide uh, theatrical cut that you can get on DVD and Blu-ray that was released in October of 2019. Um, Midsommar ended up being nominated for Best Horror Film by the Hollywood Critics Association. Ari Aster and Florence Pugh were nominated for Best Screenplay and Best Actress, respectively, at the Gotham Independent Film Awards. Cinematographer Powell Pogarski was nominated for Best Cinematography at the Independent Spirit Awards. And Florence Pugh received one of the Virtuoso Awards for Up-and-Coming Performers at the Santa Barbara International Film Festival that year. Good for her. So, some accolades, definitely not as much recognition as Hereditary got. Um, still... And I think and our think collective our opinion, some snubs. Yeah. Well, remember um, the opening of the Oscars that year with Janelle Monet doing the... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the dress. She the flower was in the dress. <laughs> Speaking of the dress, in April of 2020, almost about a year ago, A24 held an auction of major and minor props from the film, including the 10,000 silk flower May Queen dress. Whew. Yeah, uh, that ended up being purchased by the Oscars, by the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts and Sciences uh, for $65,000. They are going to display it in the currently under construction, soon to open Academy Museum of Motion Pictures. Uh, other props that were sold at that auction include uh, the bear headdress that um, Christian is dressed in in the finale which sold for $4,760. The mallet that was used to crush the head of the elder in the Atastupa scene, which sold for $10,000, and a bunch of the villagers' costumes that went for around $4,500 each. All of the proceeds from the Midsummer auction, which was over hundred grand, were donated to the New York City Fire Department and other first responders for the... Um, for COVID-19. COVID-19. Uh, Speaking uh, of uh, the elder whose head gets smashed in, Bjorn yeah. Anderson, um, he has, do you, you know about his film history at all? Do I? Well, he, there's, there's a documentary about him that came out this year or is coming out this year. I'm not sure if it's out yet. Um, called The Most Beautiful Boy in the World. Because he, when he was younger, he was just, he has this angelic, like, you know, the perfect Scandinavian, white European face. Um, And he was cast in a uh, Lucino Visconti film um, called Death in Venice. And it apparently, like, made him, like, a worldwide star. Because everyone was like, who is this insanely beautiful teenage boy who's got like this just angelic face yeah um and he became a huge like it was a huge deal for the longest time um and he's the elder who you know gets his face smashing but yes there's a documentary about him uh i think it just came out or it premiered at sundance um this past january so it's not out for wide release yet but it's called the most beautiful boy in the world and it details him and like the responses to um, the Lucino Visconti film um, and just how like he was this, he went through this insane thing as like a child actor 
Um, but this like wow, very very um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Anyway, like it's interesting. Pictures. Yeah, yeah, and there's a book as well called uh, "The Beautiful Boy," uh, which was published in 2003. Wow, wow! So clearly, yeah. no, he's a he's a big deal. He's a big deal. <laughs> but if you look at pictures of this, and I kid, didn't even like, bring him up in the roll call. <laughs> yeah, it's insane. Wow! Like if you look at pictures of him in his little sailor outfit so he's with his sweet. luscious hair. Uh, yes, he's a Swedish actor and a musician. Interesting, and I guess pretty cool that like, um, so many of the villagers like appear to have been actually Swedish, despite the fact that they filmed in Hungary. Yeah, yeah, they like found Swedish people <laughs> and then brought them over. Yeah, but uh, yeah. So, little fun fact about him is he was a big deal in 1971. <laughs> big deal. Big deal. And now he's getting his now face malleded in. Yeah, yeah. I wonder too if that was like some sort of joke by Aster, too, right? Oh. Because the entire thing about this guy is that his entire life was um like his face about perfect. how beautiful he was and how perfect his features were, and we just smash his fucking face. Yeah, in. and like we spent like, time, time smashing his face in. in. Yeah, so I wonder if that's kind of a little in joke. I bet I, I wouldn't put it past him. Yeah. Well, speaking, well, of, speaking that, of that, so our next so segment our next is one good, scare, one good Scare, where we talk, about, we talk about what we feel, we feel uh, is the most frightening most moment frightening of the film. Moment. That, moment that moment is really difficult to watch. Yeah, no, that's the one that I always warn people about. I'm like, there's one moment that's like really a lot. You'll probably know it before it gets there. And everyone else is usually like fine about it. They're like, calm down. It's okay. Like, I, I'm fine. But, um, yeah, I remember that whole thing being just really, and it goes on for so long, and God. you know, like, the whole thing, like, what's going to happen, but, um... Well, I remember that I remember moment, that like, moment, when like, he drops, because he, he goes second. Yeah, yeah, because she dies on impact, yeah. and he yeah. fucks and, like, up. And, like, there's, like, there's like a, kind of a moment kind of where, where um, you don't realize don't that he's still alive. He's still alive. And then yeah. he like groans like, he, like, or whatever. Groans. And I just remember I just being remember like, oh like, no. <laughs> like, high. Yeah, because he falls kind of funky. Yeah, he, yeah, he, he falls weird. And they're like, get the hammer. Um, what's interesting is apparently like that scene like pissed off some people in Sweden because they're like, that's not real. And it is like, it's a real practice it obviously doesn't happen now but it has happened in the past as right for right. yeah it's called of, um, yeah and it's it's a it's literally a form of like killing elderly or sacrificing elderly in like nordic i mean it's old but it's real yeah 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 it's yeah, based yeah. off of based like an, an actual practical practice, practice. Um, um yeah like yeah, yeah it's, like, it was supposed yeah, to be like supposed to be like it's that version of that thing right that when thing, like right? You were too old to work. You yeah. didn't want to be a burden on your community. So you, like, so you like went walked out off into, into the, the woods. woods and died. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Obviously, obviously, just seeing that happen seeing in 2019, 2019 is cause for concern. Cause for concern. Um, yeah. Um, hence, as far as we know, people aren't doing it now. <laughs> right. Right. 
But then it's like, but what's also what's great about this, great about this movie, movie and what pulls movie you movie in is that, like, is that like you you understand, understand so much where, where the people of Harga, Harga are coming from. Are coming from. Because they explain it so calmly and so methodically and stuff. And then, like, I, like, you know, I'm sitting there thinking and I'm like, I don't want to be, like, crazy old and not able to take care of myself and, like, drain resources or, like, be a burden on people around me. Like, that's that's not life to me. And so then I'm, like, sitting there and I'm like, I get it. I get it. In theory. In theory, I don't know that yeah. I get it. Well, and the other thing too is it's like it's like the same arguments with assisted suicide. It's like, yeah, yeah. Why is this a bother to you, right? Like, why is this? How does this affect you? Um, you yeah. know, if somebody has decided completely in their right mind with a doctor or whoever or their village, you know, fellows that this is what they want, then why is it, you know? Which I think is what they're trying. Pele tries to get across is like you know this is just what we do. This is what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Um. You know, there's nothing. It's it's a it's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um. Which is interesting and also I guess part of the horror too is like, mm-hmm. you know, sitting with that and and reckoning. Um. With that. And uh, yeah, and, and I yeah, think and also I think heightens, also the, heightens horror, the horror. Um. Uh, in the sense in the that. Sense um, that um, we sort of begin our time in Harga with this willing sacrifice and we end with the culmination of a sacrifice where all of the participants were not willing. Right. You know, they lose their lives not by choice. Um, so, so yeah. Um, moving on now to our next segment, the view from the closet. How can we view this film from an LGBTQ plus lens? <laughs> so I don't know I think the the obvious thing would be the obvious thing and the like sort of weak thing would be focusing in on like you know the sort of female relationships there but I feel like that that almost does a disservice to what it's trying to say and also yeah. Danny doesn't have a, a a strong enough relationship with any one woman in this no. to really for that to to matter um yeah i will say i imagine there's probably a lot of a lot of gays running around in the harga they probably don't give a shit i wouldn't wouldn't think so so. i would i mean well they might care in the sense that like we need more human beings right but and like they you know there's there's a couple mentions of like they you know, they have to approve who mates with who and they're concerned about the bloodline and that's kind of the whole point of Pele going out to bring new people in. But, like, I feel like it would be kind of a thing where, like, well, as long as, like, we are procreating, what you do beyond that, be free. Yeah. Yeah, as long as, like, you know, that yeah, there's, like, you've got whatever your replacement population is that they need in yeah. this world. Yeah. They're like, you know what? You do you. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah I think. So. It, I, and I mean, also, like, you're telling me these people have never had to lure, like, queer people, too. Like, you know, like, somebody, like, they have to send somebody out in the world to go 
you know, do that. Yeah, well, yeah, maybe, well like, maybe the scouts like the scouts are instructed, are instructed not, to not to bring back. back. Uh, uh, that's true. Anyone, anyone who's not not heterosexual. Heterosexual. Yeah, maybe maybe queer folks survive in the world if yeah, we don't end up in these situations. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, you're, you, won't you're, you won't be targeted. Be targeted. <laughs> I'm, I'm down for that. Yeah, okay. Yeah, okay. Cool, cool, cool. cool, cool. So now we'll move so now into, we'll into our penultimate our segment, penultimate Legacy, 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 What is a Legacy? legacy. And, and we just take a we'll moment take a or two to talk about... Some impact, impact of the impact film. Of the film. We, we have covered, covered most of that, most I, of think, that. Um, I think, um, in regards to, in you know, regards to, its, awards its awards and the director's and cut the and the auction and whatnot. and whatnot. I think let's just quickly think now just now say, now like, say, how like, how maybe we've seen Midsommar affect Midsommar culture over the last over two, the years. two years. Yes. Um, I've definitely seen a lot of merch. Yeah. I'm wearing yeah. a Midsommar t-shirt. Um there's a lot of, like, you know, I said Ariana Grande is a huge Midsummer fan. Um, Carmen Maria Machado is a huge Midsummer fan. Um, I feel like I see it get parodied a lot, like the, the flower dress. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's and become, that, a that's meme, become a meme, I feel like. Not, like, yeah. crazy, popular, crazy popular, but I've definitely I've seen. Um, uh, like, Bernie like got Bernie put got in the flower, put dress the flower dress. Yeah. <laughs> A couple weeks ago. Or like he was inserted into a scene where like everyone, like something's happening yeah, in like the at, village. Like, um, like at the table during one of the yeah. tables or something. Yeah. 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 I think it's definitely become a, a cultural conversation um, for the imagery alone, if not, yeah. if not anything else. Um, the image of uh, Danny crying Mm-hmm. The, the the group house group after house she after sees she Christian sees with Maya, Maya and like the women yeah. are breathing yeah. and, and, and crying with her, her. I feel like yeah. has become really popular. Um, um, yeah, and like yeah. tons and, of like, merch. Tons of merch. Um, uh, there's a there's official A twenty four merch. Like all the all the other horror all sites have a bunch of stuff. Miss Mel is actually wearing a shirt right now. I am. I am. If you all ask nicely, maybe I'll tweet a picture out of it. Yeah, yeah. So, 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 yeah. So, yeah. And now we'll move into, our, we'll move into closing our closing question for our discussion of Midsummer. Um, uh, something fun something and fun light we kind of like to end on to end pull on, ourselves out of things. Out of things. Just, a just a fun little question. And that question, that question for this episode is what is your scariest travel story? Scariest travel story? Hmm. Because, like, because, like, are you not watching you this not film watching and being like, these hoes, these hoes should <laughs> out of here. Never going anywhere. Immediately. Immediately. See, this is the problem is, is I've not really traveled a ton. Like I've never left the continent. Yeah. Um, but you're so, but I don't know, but you've crisscrossed this continent a lot. I have. I mean, when I was younger, um, living in Arizona, we used to like walk across the border into Mexico a lot. <laughs> um, That'll do it. That'll do it. Yeah. So there's that. Um, that was never scary to me though, but I guess in hindsight, it's a little bit scary. You're like, oh, it's fine. You're like, oh, it's fine. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like I don't know. I mean, I guess I. It's nice that I've not had anything like crazy happen. Um, 
I will. Okay. So here's something funny. It's not even really travel. It's, um, my, my mother's boyfriend, as Mr. Craigos knows, is a pilot. Um, he is a commercial pilot as well as he owns a little airplane that he'll take out, you know, every other weekend or so to do flying. And around Christmas, the day after Christmas, we, we took out the plane, um, cause it's always fun. It's nice, but it was so windy that day. Like it was so terrifying because <laughs> it's a tiny plane. It holds three, it has four seats, but it holds three people like weight wise. Yeah. Um, yeah. and it was just bouncing all over the place. There was turbulence. Like I actually closed my eyes on the landing because I was like, well, we go, we go. Um, it, it was terrifying. The whole thing was very, it was so funny because I like, wasn't I didn't even have like the wherewithal to get nauseous because I was so focused on being afraid that we were just gonna drop out of the sky <laughs> or something. Um, I was super freaked out. That's freaky. that's freaky. Yeah. So that's what do you got though? You've you're more of a world traveler than I am. So, so when I was studying I was abroad. abroad. I uh, took a little side trip with a friend of mine to uh, Mykonos, the coast of Greece, Um, and we ended up getting there. The ferry from Athens was delayed, and so we got there, like, really, really late Um, to the point where, like, everything on the island was closed, basically. And we had set out that day, and we were just like, we will, we'll, like, we'll find... um, Lodging when we get there. there. Mm -hmm. So we didn't book anything in advance. So we were, we were there there at like midnight and we didn't have anywhere to stay. stay. And And this woman woman, um, was like sort of at the pier where they just like like dropped you off at the ferry and just sort of like hustled us into her car and was like, come stay with me, come stay with me and took her us back to her house in the middle of the island. And it was like, and it was like pitch black. And there was like, there's like, there's like two main points of civilization on Mykonos on either end of the island. And we were in the middle of the island. Oh my God. And there was like nobody around. And like, she said her house was, was a bed and breakfast. And she like took us up to the room and was just like, okay, good night. And looking back, I'm sure it was fine. And everything was, and fine, everything was fine, and it just happened to just be happened that we got, there, we so got there so late. But it felt it really felt wrong really to me. Wrong <laughs> and yeah. I just kept I just thinking kept of thinking all of the horror movies I have watched, and like I couldn't get hostile get out of my mind. mind. Right? <laughs> and, and maybe some, and maybe some other factors some too. And I kind of had a panic attack, and I was basically just like, we are not staying here. Because I will not be able to calm down enough to stay here. And it led to this it absolutely like ridiculous, ridiculous slew of nonsense. But I had to go with my gut. I had to go with my instincts. It did not feel listen, chill. Listen. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. So a bit more hostile than Midsummer, but I don't want a Midsummer experience. No, don't want either. But no, I, yeah, I, don't want I don't want either. So Miss Mo, do you have anything else that you desperately need to say about Midsummer before we? Close the book. No, I think I think I feel pretty good about it. Okay. Well, well. Uh, if you enjoyed, if you enjoyed listening to this episode, this episode please, please um, um, 
let us know. Let us know on our on various our social, medias. social medias. Miss Mel, Miss Mel. what are those what social medias? They are on Twitter at Splatterchatter. Ah, uh, six 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 minus all the vowels. If that's too difficult, just give it a search. We'll pop right up. Uh, we're on Tumblr at splatterchatter.tumblr.com. Working on getting that Instagram back up, but it would be splatterchatter six 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 on Instagram. Uh, you can email us at splatterchatter at 669 at gmail.com. You can check out the blog at splatter-chatter.com. Finally learned it. Um, I think I got them all. Yeah. 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 And then if you want to support you, us uh, on Patreon, Patreon. Um, uh, we're there we're at, at uh, splatterchatter666, I do believe. Um, if you enjoyed this episode, uh, you could check out episode 45, where we cover Ari Aster's first film, Hereditary. Or you could uh, check out other uh, Women's History Month episodes, like our Scream Queens series in episodes 20, 21, and 23, where we look at Scream Queens past and present. Or episode 38, where we take a look at deadly teen flick Tragedy Girls. Or our or Ladies Who Crunch Ladies March, Madness March Madness Bracket, where we... Ooh, that was a tough one. Yeah, where we yeah, determined where we the genre's most genre badass heroine. Badass heroine. Uh, that was in uh, episode, was 61. episode 61. Or you could or take you a listen to episode 78, 78, where we looked at the once maligned, but now cult now classic cult film, film, Jennifer's Body. Yes. Right now, this right now, is going to going finish to episode 84. We are going to return in April for episode 85, which will be covering Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. In honor of the Oscars having been pushed back to April, we're going to take a look at the only horror film to have one best picture. A big one, a tall order. I think it'll be fun. Yeah. I'm excited. Yeah. yeah. So until, until we, we dive into all, dive things, into all things Clarice, Clarice and, and Dr. Lecter, Dr. Lecter, we want to remind we you guys to keep up the creep. And for now, we'll say au revoir. Adios.